Malachi chapter 1. We read this. An oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, and have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins, but this is what the Lord Almighty says, they may build, but I will demolish They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, Great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. This is God's word. You may be seated. Allow me just to pray for us once more and ask God to bless this time that we come to his word now. Living God, as we come to your word now, I ask that you would put your blessing on this time, put your anointing on this time. You have something that you want to speak to us. You always want to speak to us through your word. It is uh, one of your revelations of yourself to us. And I pray this morning as we go through this passage, Father, would you reveal yourself more and more to us? Would you accomplish in us the purpose for which you have revealed yourself in this way? You know the needs of each of our heart, and I believe that you have prepared my heart this uh, this week uh, in order to speak to all of us something that we need to hear. So I pray that you'd accomplish that, O God. You say your, your word always accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. So Father, would you accomplish that in us today? And as I always ask now, eternal God, move and govern my tongue to speak your truth. Amen. Expectations. Expectations are funny things, aren't they? Uh, We can be formed with the very smallest amount of evidence. And yet, once we've decided on them, well, they quickly become so deeply held within us that we become instantly angry, uh, frustrated, disappointed uh, when they're not met. Uh, If you need an example of this, uh, you just need to remember back to the time, I'm probably dating myself here, but when you would open up the Sears Christmas catalog to the page that had that bike that you desperately wanted for Christmas, and so you, you put it out somewhere you thought your parents would surely see it, you put it out on the kitchen table maybe and just leave it there, and then you go to school, whatever, you come back and you see that the magazine has been closed, and from that evidence alone, you form the confident expectation I'm totally getting that bike for Christmas. Totally getting it. And then it doesn't doesn't matter what you get on Christmas. Parents could give you a Ferrari. If if it's not what you were hoping for, what you expected, well, you're disappointed. You're maybe even angry. Why why would they not get me the bike that they were supposed to get me? I don't know if that's... I'm probably revealing more about myself and my own levels of disappointment. But anyway, we're beginning this new series that we've been talking about uh, this Sunday through the book of Malachi. Malachi, correcting vision is what we're calling it. And as you've seen now, Malachi, this is uh, the book that closes out the Old Testament. Malachi is the last of the minor prophets. And I think what we're going to see very clearly over these next few weeks as we go through this book, that just like us, the people of Israel also formed expectations as well, just like this. Uh, in this particular case, expectations of God. 
expectations, what he was like, how he does things. And when those expectations were not met, God's people became angry and disappointed with him. And, and really, slipped, they slid into a kind of spiritual apathy, just kind of a going through the motions kind of faith, and really into a doubting mistrust, a questioning distrust of God, which was the whole reason God sent Malachi to them, to, to answer their questions and to, to correct their vision, correct the way that they were wrongly seeing things. And in fact, given that reality, I think it's very telling the way that Malachi begins this book in verse 1. If you look there again, he starts the whole thing by saying, an oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Now, that word oracle, commentators tell us, is, is more accurately translated as the word burden. A burden that I want to bring to you. A burden, it says, with implications of urgent responsibility and even dread. That's what Malachi is bringing to the people of Israel. It's not, a, it's not a message of, hey, great job, you guys, you're killing it over there. No, no, no. It's a message of, of an urgent call to repentance. A call to a people who were not seeing God correctly. And as a result, they were spiraling towards destruction. And maybe you've asked yourself, why Malachi? Or why would we, uh, why, why would we go here? You know, right now, this point in the year, this point in the life of our church, uh, some people have asked me that as well. And what I would say to you is this. As we go through this book over the next five weeks, we'll have a little short break in the middle there for retreat. As we go through this and we look at the questions, really the accusations that the people of Israel bring against God in the face of their unmet expectations, we're going to see, first of all, as God responds to those questions, we're going to get a greater understanding of what God is like, how He does operate in this world. So first of all, just on a very basic level, it's going to help us in our forming of our own expectations of God. What, what should we expect of Him? What can we realistically expect of God as we see how He responds to their questions? But the other piece about Malachi is that Malachi, is, as a book, is a warning it's a warning, first of all, that, that we don't allow ourselves to form unfounded, unrealistic expectations of God and then slide into that same spiritual apathy ourselves, that same doubting mistrust of God ourselves because we formed wrong expectations of Him. But also, the other, it's not, impl- it's not explicit in here, but implicit in here is we can also develop that same kind of spiritual apathy with God by having no expectations of him at all. See, the people of Israel, as we dig into this, we'll see historically what's happening is Israel is starting slowly to make their return from exile in Babylon back to their promised land, rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple, eventually the walls. They're at a a place of beginning again, restarting which is not dissimilar at all to where we are in the life of our church right now. We've just come through a past year of, of, of transition and change in leadership, splashes of crazy thrown in all throughout there. And now we're at a place of restarting, rebeginning. And for Israel then and for us now, that place of rebeginning leaves us at a crossroads where we've got a decision to make where we ask, what are we expecting of God now? 
There's this path here which takes us down. Maybe what we're expecting of God is just like, okay, now we can get back to normal. We can get back to what we're used to, what we're comfortable with, the things that we know and and we're familiar with. And this other path, which leads us to, to prayerfully cry out to God and say, God, what are you calling us to now? Your message does not change, but are you calling us now to do something differently, something that's outside of our comfort zones in order to truly see our purpose accomplished, truly see our city and our world transformed by the gospel, see our church filled up with men and women who are passionately following God, who are learning to to know God better and coming to know him for the first time. God, are you calling us to go down this path? I think most of us, I pray it would be your hope that he would take us down this path. But you know, this book truly is a warning to us. Because if you look historically at the people of Israel, they chose path number one. They wanted to go down the path and say, no, 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 we just want to get back, set up things the way we're used to again. You know, we've got to rebuild stuff, get our city back in order, and then, you know, then we can worry about whatever else you want, God. And they went down that path, and as a result, they became further and further distanced from God, finally to the place where they don't actually hear from God again. God does not speak through one of his priests or prophets to Israel for 400 years. The next time God speaks to his people is 400 years later to another prophet named Zechariah in a temple where he comes to him and says, Zechariah, your wife Elizabeth, who's been barren, is going to give birth to a son. They're going to call his name John, and he's going to be the forerunner to the Messiah. John the Baptist, that's, that's the baby he's talking about. That's the very child that is prophesied in the book of Malachi. So, my prayer for us as a church as we start to dig into this book of Malachi and go through it, that we would heed this warning ourselves, that we would grow and deepen in our knowledge of what God's like. That's going to help us form proper expectations of Him. But also that God would deepen and grow our love and our trust in Him, which would enable us to step out in faith and trust Him for new things as we start again. That we would come to grow in our trust of a God who loves us with an everlasting love and who is demonstrably for us. So, on this very first Sunday, the very first question that we dig into, if you see in verse 2, look with me here. The question that people of Israel level against God is the question, how have you loved us? How have you loved us? And I think it's incredibly significant that God addresses this question first. Let me explain what I mean by that. See, there's, there's no indication whatsoever that God is answering these questions of Israel in chronological order. Hey, you asked me this question first, so I'll answer it first. No, God is choosing specifically what he wants to start with. You bring me all these questions, I want to start here. And I'm saying that that's incredibly significant. It's incredibly meaningful that why he would do that And I think very simply the reason is God is addressing this question first because he knows this is actually the foundational issue that Israel is struggling with. Namely, that they have lost confidence in the love of God for them. They've lost their faith and their confidence in God's love for them. 
And by starting here, God is effectively saying to them as well as to us today that to lose your grasp of, to lose your faith in God's love for us, it can be like a a cancer that eats us alive. And it becomes this, this disease out of which all these other issues and questions that Israel brings to God, they all have their roots in this one problem here. So that's why he wants to start here with this key problem. So we need to see that clearly ourselves. We're going to come back to this likely all through this series because it is, I believe, God starts here because he intends the entire float of the book to be read through this lens. That doubt, distrust, loss of faith in God's love for us, it's not a spiritual sickness that just is contained in the heart. No, no, no. It is a cancer that metastasizes into the eyes. And it affects the way we see God and everything he does. And it makes sense, really, when you think about it. To know that we're loved, that's one of the most basic human needs we have from the time we're born. I believe God designed us that way, to, to, to need to be loved. Think about how many expectations we form of others based on the, the, the truth of knowing that they love us. And we see this all through popular culture as well. 1964, Dean Martin had to the top of the billboard charts with his classic hit, you're nobody until what? Until somebody loves you. David Bowie, in his classic hit, Nature Boy, declared to us, the greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love and be loved in return. There was even uh, Alfred Lord Tennyson, not Shakespeare, who said, it is better to have loved and lost than to never have loved at all. And if we look around us, of course, we see everywhere, from uh, psychological journals, uh, in all of our media, songs, movies, TV, even in news reports, we see the the damage, really the abuse that results in the human heart when that basic human need to be loved is not met or when it's withheld from someone. But even granting all that, what is so striking, what stands out so significantly, and I think it's intended to stand out that way, it's just this vast contrast between God's declaration of his love Here in this passage, I have loved you, and Israel's accusation that he has not. And how can those those two things be true? They, they, They can't. They are diametrically opposed to one another. So either God has loved Israel, and they're wrong to accuse him of not loving him, or God hasn't loved them, and Israel is right to challenge God's false claim that he has. And I'm probably... It won't surprise you that uh, I believe God is right, and he actually has loved Israel. But what I want to do and spend the next few minutes together is just try to explore then, if it's true that God's loved them, how is it that Israel could even ask him that question? What would lead them to even ask such a question of God? Because if God's right and he has loved them, this really is an audacious question to ask him, isn't it? I mean, this would be on the level of, of a parent raising up a child through, uh, all through grade school, you know, lovingly caring for them, then sending them off to university, paying for all costs, uh, tuition, books, room and board, uh, transportation, everything. They get them set up, head back home, a couple of days later call, just be like, hey, hey, we just wonder how things are going. How's everything so far? And the kid says, well, what do you care? Why would you even ask me that? Well, um, 
I'm your dad. I love you. I just want to see how you do. What? You love me? How have you loved me? I mean, even just saying that makes me angry. But imagine that kind of situation. As unbelievable it sounds to us, the reality is we believe that same thing about God and we make those same accusations against God all the time. We do it ourselves. And we do it all the time whenever the expectations that we've placed on God don't pan out the way that we expected them to. So, to help us understand how Israel could ask this question and to help us not fall into the same trap ourselves, make this same accusation of God, I want to look at this passage this morning just in two ways. I want us to look at the love of God questioned and the love of God answered. Just those two things. The love of God questioned and the love of God answered. So if you closed your Bibles, would you open them back up to Malachi and follow along with me as we dig into this together. So let's begin by looking at the love of God questioned. The love of God questioned. I think the easiest way for us to begin to understand how it is that Israel could even bring a question like this to God is to look at historically what was going on in this nation when the book of Malachi was written. Some debate as to timing, but most scholars agree that the, the, the book was written somewhere around 440 B.C. This is after the second group of exiles has returned from Babylon to Jerusalem, and they've uh, completed the rebuilding of Solomon's temple. This is under the leadership of Ezra, the priest. So sometime between there and the third group of exiles that returned with Nehemiah, who then rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. But although they'd been freed from their captivity in Babylon, they've returned to the promised land, returned to Jerusalem, they rebuilt Solomon's temple, although not at all to the same stature that it had been before. The inconsistency happened when Israel continued to experience suffering and hardship. They continued to experience uh, poverty, drought, economic adversity, and just, just... aggravation and aggression from the current inhabitants of the land who weren't super psyched that the former inhabitants were returning now and wanted their land back. Created all kinds of problems. The simple reality is that these circumstances didn't line up with Israel's expectations about, of what it would be like when they returned back to Jerusalem. See, previous to all this, in his encouragement to finish rebuilding the temple, he kind of stalled out for various reasons, another prophet, Zechariah from the Old Testament, had encouraged them to keep going, finish this temple, keep going and get it done. And the way he had encouraged them to do that was by painting this beautiful picture, prophesying about the coming messianic age, when God would send his long-awaited rescuer, and it was going to happen, he said, here in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is going to be a key part of that. So this is motivating everyone, right? We got, yeah, we got to get this done because God's going to carry this out. And yet... Although Zechariah had not once said to the people, okay, this is going to happen in a couple weeks from now. It's going to happen probably next year. Even though he hadn't said that, somehow everybody heard, it's going to happen in a couple weeks. It's going to happen a year from now. I'm going to get that bike. You know, whatever it was, that's what they expected. I mean, this is exactly what we said about the way we form expectations, right? The smallest bit of evidence, we just run with it. And when it didn't work out the way that they had expected it to, they continued to experience these difficulties. The the Messiah didn't come right then. Well, they were so disappointed 
It was just profound was their disappointment. It, it led to disillusionment. Their disillusionment led to despair, which led to this spiritual apathy, this kind of going through the motions kind of spirituality which God says he detests, as well as to this distrust of God. This is why God has sent Malachi at all, to come and speak to them, to bring his, his words of, of love to them, to remind them, I have loved you. And so, while this doesn't excuse Israel's asking of this question, it certainly does explain it to us, to a certain extent. If you've got to think about it, Israel didn't start with this distrust of God's love for them. No, quite the contrary. They started with a confident expectation of it. But, as they saw what appeared to be the natural progression of events, they formed expectations as they thought, okay, this is how it's going to work out, right? I mean... Zechariah is saying that as we return, it's going to go like this. And so now we have returned, okay? And now we're actually, we've rebuilt the temple. We're going to continue to build this city. They, they saw what was the natural progression of events and made expectations on it. But you see, that's just the point. Because what appears to us to be the natural progression of events is not always the way that it appears to God. In fact, it quite frequently is not the way that He acts. And yet... When we allow our finite understanding of the natural progression of events to form the basis of our confident expectation, well, then we have no one but ourselves to blame the resulting disappointment. Nor can we blame God or, or accuse Him of not loving us when He doesn't follow through with those expectations. We've just simply confidently trusted God for something He never promised to give us. I think that's exactly what Israel had done and why they would even asked God such a question. They'd simply formed wrong expectations of Him. And as I said earlier, it needs to be said to us, if we're honest with ourselves, we do this exact same thing in our lives all the time. If you need an example of this, just think back to the last time that you earnestly prayed to God for something and you felt confident that He was going to follow through just as, you, just as you were praying for it, and then He didn't. What, uh, what happened in your heart when that happened? What happened in your thinking about God when He didn't come through the way you'd expected Him to? It can make even the most spiritually mature and confident among us struggle and doubt and ask questions. I experienced something much like this even just this past year as we were uh, praying for uh, little Emery Richmond and his recovery Boy, he had a brain tumor, and they were doing treatments here. We met his family through these amazing God circumstances, and we were supporting the family and, and caring for them, and treatments seemed to be working so much so that they could move back home to Oklahoma, and they were doing these treatments that we're seeing to keep the cancer at bay. We prayed fervently for that to continue, and yet all of a sudden we started getting reports that it wasn't doing so well, and then suddenly... Within a few days of his fourth birthday, he was gone. I struggled a lot with that to understand why God would do that. I mean, we didn't, weren't, weren't we right to confidently expect him to heal him? That's, that's, that's what it looked like was happening. Weren't we right to confidently expect that God would use these circumstances to draw his parents into a deeper 
faith and trust in him. If we follow the natural, what we see in our own vision of what was the natural progression of events, yes. We should have expected that. And yet God had something different in mind. He had a different type of healing he wanted to bring to Emory. Complete one. And yet, if God's being loving towards Emory, if God's being loving towards us, is contingent upon him going along with what we see as the best course of events, then doesn't that make us the sovereign God of the universe and not him? Does God's love dependent on him following what we think is best? No. I think as uh, Tim Keller, a pastor and author out of New York, has rightly pointed out, in order for God to actually be God, by definition, he has to be able to do things at times we're not going to understand, that are incomprehensible to us otherwise. There's actually no difference between us. His love and him being loving towards us is not contingent upon him following our plans. And that was just the problem for Israel, that for them it was. They felt that God's love for them was contingent upon him following their understanding of the natural progression of events. Which led them to ask the question. So, so that's the, the love of God questioned. Let's take a few more minutes now and just look at God's answer. What's God's answer to their question? So we'll look lastly at the love of God answered. The love of God answered. Now, does God have any obligation whatsoever to answer this question that's been brought to him? How have you loved us? Does he have any obligation to answer this question? If you think back to that scenario uh, we talked about with uh, the child that, that you've raised up and put into university, questioning that you even care for them, I mean, for a parent who's so demonstrably demonstrated their love for a child to then be asked to defend that love, to prove it? Are you kidding me? A beggar's belief to even imagine such a situation. I mean, if that would ever happen to any of us, I imagine most of us, we wouldn't even respond to the question. We'd just walk out the door, head right to the registrar's office, and stop payment on everything that we were paying for, get in the car and drive home. See ya. See you when you get home. Like, that's, that's, that's how I'd want to react, and yet, not so our Father in heaven. God answers this question, although he has no obligation to answer it, because he is so gracious, patient, because he is truly loving. He answers his short-sighted children all the same. But notice, looking back to our passage here in verse 2, he starts, he begins, first of all, with the fact of his love for them. He says, I have loved you. Those are the very first words that he wants them to hear. I have loved you. Let's, let's start there, and then we'll work. Then we'll work out from there. Now that, I have loved you, that you is, is plural. It's a plural word here. So if God was a southerner, he would say, I have loved all y'all. That's what he's saying to them here. This is addressed to the whole nation of Israel, not just to specific individuals within it. As their apathy is corporate, so is his call to repentance. But if you look at the way God responds to their question initially, 
To modern-day readers, this makes no sense at all. This leaves us scratching our heads as to wondering what God's talking about. Look at verse 2 again. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Here's God's response. Was not Esau Jacob's brother? What? <laughs> Sorry? Did you not hear the question I asked you? Uh, that, that sounds like he's not even responding to the same question. And yet, whenever we come to the Bible, we always need to first understand, well, what, what did it mean to the original readers, the original hearers, before we can ever understand what it means to us? And what we see here is in Malachi's prophecy, just using those names, using those names, Esau and Jacob, automatically implies an entire narrative to an Israelite that they would have got, they would have understood. Same way as if you were to say to us in Canada, we're not uh, Stephen Harper and Justin Trudeau, both candidates to be uh, the next Prime Minister of Canada. Just saying their names, we just think, oh yeah, okay, there was that whole election, there was a whole Stop Harper thing. It implies a whole story just by saying their names. Same thing here. God's answering to their questioning of how he has loved them is to remind them of a story that would have been all too familiar to them. Now, in case it's not totally familiar to you. Let's quickly recap what that story is. Uh, God's referring to this story we read about in the book of Genesis where Isaac, the only son of Abraham, has two sons, Jacob and Esau, who are duking it out with each other even inside their mother's womb. They're already fighting with each other. And Rebecca comes to God and she's like, what in the world is going on here? God says to her, these two sons battling it out inside your belly, these are, are, are representative of two nations. These are two different nations that are already at war within you. And then, completely contrary to the way things operated in this ancient Near Eastern context, God tells Rebecca that the older son will serve the younger one. That his blessing, that his love, and all of this will rest on Jacob, the younger son, and not on Esau. Now, commenting further on this in the New Testament book of Romans, the Apostle Paul says this, When Rebecca had conceived children by the one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved but Esau I hated. And we'll come back to this election word in a second. But, but first of all, just hearing that language of love and hate, and we're talking about little babies here, this sounds like, what, what is going on? What do you mean? What, you, hate, you hate Esau. What? Well, again, we need to understand what it meant to the original readers. Okay. In this context, God's not referring to his affection. He's not referring to liking one kid more than the other. God's love here refers to his choice, refers to his choosing. God's hatred refers to his rejection or as his passing over. So we could read this verse as, Yet I have chosen Jacob, but Esau I have rejected. That's the sense of the language here. So God's choice of Jacob, Paul calls it his electing of Jacob, whose name will later be changed to Israel, and his rejection of Esau, who is the father of the Edomite nation, this is absolutely, he's talking about those two sons. He's referring to them specifically. But he's also using this uh, literary device, which we've talked about in the past, called synecdoche. Synecdoche, it's a, it's a fun word to say. 
What it means is it's about taking a part of something and using it to refer to the whole thing. So we use an example of if you talk about tinkling the ivories, nobody thinks you're talking about some piano keys floating in the air. We're talking about a whole piano by using that part of it. So here, same thing. In referring to God's love or choice of Jacob and his hatred or rejection of Esau, God's talking about his choice of Israel as a nation. I have chosen all of you as a nation, and I have rejected Esau, who was the father of Edom. Now, God's love being equated to his choice is clearly seen in places like Deuteronomy. This is just before people were about to enter the promised land, and through his prophet Moses, God says this to his people. Listen, Deuteronomy 7, the Lord did not set his affection, there's the love word, he did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people. You were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh and the king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. Okay, so coming back to Israel's question now. How have you loved us? By answering the question with a question himself, saying, was not Esau Jacob's brother? God is reminding them of this well-known narrative that they all would have known, but he's doing that in order to bring about, to imply a very specific application. Namely, he's trying to say to them, listen, as Jacob's brother, these guys are both brothers of the same family, as his brother, didn't Esau have just as much of a chance as Jacob to be chosen by me? He's saying, actually, didn't, didn't Esau have even more of a chance of being chosen and loved by him? He was the elder son. He's the one who was supposed to be chosen. He's the one who's supposed to be blessed, wasn't he? That's what he's implying by asking that question. And an honest answer to the question would have had to have been, yes. Yes. And in admitting that truth... The people of Israel were proving God's love for themselves. They were doing it for themselves because they knew they were the ones that God had chosen. They were the people God had chosen and not the people of Esau, the Edomites. And then everything God says beyond that, he's just confirming and solidifying the truth of his love and favor that it still rests on them. Because as Israel returns to their ruined cities and their rebuilding, God highlights the fact that the Edomites, the people of Esau, when they come and try to do the same thing, I'm going to oppose them. I'm not going to let them do it. That's how I'm confirming my choice. My choice is you. I'm blessing you and not these other people. I have loved you, he's saying. Look at verse 4. Edom may say, though we've been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says, they may build, but I will demolish. Don't you see, God says, I have loved you. I have loved you, and I continue to love you still. How have I loved you? You can look back to a decisive moment in history where I demonstrated my love to you supremely in choosing Jacob and through him choosing you as a nation. I've chosen you to be my treasured possession, not because you are more deserving 
in any way, but to demonstrate the greatness of my love in choosing you, in choosing Jacob who had no hope of being chosen any other way. And far beyond that, I continue to demonstrate my love to you in many countless ways as my chosen treasured people. I have loved you. And for you and I today, living on this side of the cross, whenever our flawed expectations of God don't line up with what he is perfectly willed to do, and we're tempted just like Israel to doubt God's love for us, God has the very same message. He says, I have loved you. And there's a decisive point in your own history that you can point back to, that you can look back to where I demonstrated my love supremely for you and for all time. And that moment, first of all, was when, as John 3.16 tells us, that God so loved the world that he gave. He so loved the world that he gave his only son to live the perfect life we could never live, to die the death that we deserved to die in order to reconcile us back to God. That's love demonstrated, love accomplished, right there. We can always look back to it and see it. But if you know Jesus as your Savior this morning, we also have a moment in time to look back to when love was applied. That love demonstrated on the cross was applied to you specifically when God chose you and brought you into his family as one of his own chosen treasured possessions. The Bible says God did that for us even before the creation of the world. He set his love on us. Listen to how Paul says it in Ephesians chapter 1. It says this, For God chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight in love. He predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with the pleasure of his will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given to the one, given to us in the one he loves. So just like Jacob, God didn't love us because we were more worthy of his love. We were more deserving. He loved us. He applied the love of Jesus on the cross to us in order to demonstrate how great his love is in loving those who didn't deserve it. As he says, Paul says elsewhere in Romans 5, God demonstrates his love for us in this, while we were sinners, while we were at our worst, Christ died for us. The point God is making for Israel then and for us today is those very first words of his burden, of his oracle through Malachi, I have loved you. I have loved you and I continue to love you to this day. I've given you a decisive point in history to look back to. A, a, a stake in the ground, if you will, an anchor in the storm that you can always refer back to. Whenever uh, uh, if I do something, I act in a way that's impossible for you to understand and you begin to doubt my love, you always have that moment in history to look back to and say, no, no, he does love me. I know he does because he demonstrated it then. That's how he demonstrates his love continually to this day. And as I said at the start of this, God begins with the fact of his love. He begins with the fact of his love for his people because that's the lens through which he wants us to read Malachi, and it's the lens through which he wants us to view all of our lives. He wants us to do that because although his love never changes, we sang about that this morning, his love for us does not change 
stop. It does not change. That's the whole last half of Romans 8. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. And yet, although his love does not change, our circumstances, they change all the time. They change every day. And God knows that if our understanding of his love, if our trust and faith in his love for us is based solely on our expectations of him, is based on our circumstances that we experience, we are constantly going to be on this roller coaster, up and down, this daisy pedal. He loves me, he loves me not. And he doesn't want that for us. What we see is that the cry of God's heart for you this morning is, I have loved you. Don't live any longer in the fear of losing my love. Live in light of the never-ending truth of it. Live in light of it because you cannot lose it. It's a whole different way of seeing when our vision of our lives is corrected and we see everything through the lens of God's love for us, His unchanging love for us. Now, Sadly, over the next few weeks, we're going to see example after example in Malachi of what happens when we don't live in truth, in that light of the truth of God's love for us. I mean, literally every question that God addresses that Israel brings to him has its roots in their failure to believe that God loves him, that failure to believe that God is for them. So my prayer for us is that in seeing over these next weeks what it looks like when we don't do that, that we'd be all the more vigilant, we'd be all the more motivated and passionate to seek to live in the light of God's love for us every day to form our future expectations of God for ourselves as well as for our church, starting with the fact of His love for us. He has loved us. He demonstrated it supremely in the cross, and He continues to demonstrate it today, thousands and countless ways. But we'll never do it without His help. So let's pray right now. Let's pray together and ask Him, to help us to see it with greater and greater clarity, to believe it with greater and greater consistency, and to live in light of it. Let's pray together. I'd ask those of you who are helping me to serve communion if you would come forward as well. Living God, you have loved us with an everlasting love. You poured out your love for us on the cross. And yet so often we forget it. The circumstances of life confuse us and confound us and we forget. It looks like you don't love us. God, forgive us for forgetting that way. Forgive us for doubting you. Pray that you would help your love demonstrated on the cross to be the lens through which we view all circumstances, that we would always begin with the fact of your love for us and work from there, rather than letting our circumstances define and dictate how much you love us. We believe you for this, Father, and we ask you to accomplish it for our own growth and our own trust in you, as well as for the growth of your kingdom. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.